Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about history? If so, then try my podcast, Calm History. You'll learn all about famous explorers, inventions, civilizations, ancient wonders, and even the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to calmhistory.com. Welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm your host, Nikki Eisenhower, life coach and psychotherapist. And on today's episode, I'm discussing considerations in healing post-abuse. This is a very specific episode, but it is still for everyone in this audience because as highly sensitive people and as empaths, as intuitives, we really are the caretaking tribe. We are the healers. We are the listening ears. We are the people that others go to when they're hurting. Talking about childhood abuse, specifically intimate abuse or sexual abuse, is something I want to talk more about. Because I have my own experience and then my experience as a trauma therapist. And I do think that most people, even most professionals in this realm, sort of pussyfoot around it for a lot of reasons. We don't have great dialogue around sex in general. When I studied sex, my favorite sex professor, Dr. King, he explained that in our American society, we have very mixed messages of puritanicalism and over-the-top sexuality. Basically, our pendulum swings wildly, and we don't have a solid grounding. Many who talk sex positivity talk so much sex, 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 that many people over the years have told me in their healing journey that it misses the point because it feels like learning from someone who seems oversexed or like sex as a hobby or a business, which to the averagely sexed person, for lack of a better way to describe that, feels over the top, even if and when they are all for sex positivity and everything that goes with sexual freedom and expression. Trauma-informed teachings in the healing realms of therapy or yoga therapy seem to give practitioners the impression that sexually abused people are extremely delicate. I think this comes from our relationship to TV and movies and TV and movies sort of love that high drama of the moment of being sexually abused, but that moment is fleeting. If you are a nurse or a counselor who has done rape crisis work in a rape crisis center or a woman's shelter, an emergency room, yes, this moment takes delicacy. 
That person often feels emotionally and physically shattered and or dissociative, which can seem to the outsider like they aren't there, like the lights are on, but nobody's home, like something about their consciousness has flown away. Sexual abuse survivors are anything but delicate. They're quite strong for living through such violation. I advise often learning the difference as a healer or as a survivor between the acknowledgement of I was victimized versus what I call buying real estate in the victimhood. Sexual abuse survivors are some of the strongest people you will ever meet. That's why I call the show Emotional Badass. That term first came to me while sitting with a survivor in her pain. A survivor has been violated in mind, body, and spirit, betrayed by one or more members of the human tribe in the most intimate way possible. They have survived an ultimate betrayal, and they're strong for it. As a professional healer to other healers, it is imperative to hold space for the acknowledgement of having been victimized and then move through to help the survivor to be a mirror to reflect that survivor's strength so that they can start to see, own, lean in to their strength over their wounding. Well-intentioned people are scared to make the process worse for a survivor by accidentally saying the wrong thing. I am grateful for those who will lean in bravely with good intentions for survivors, being brave enough to show care, even at the risk of possibly saying the wrong thing and igniting feelings in a survivor. If that happens, know that you're not igniting the feelings. Those feelings are there because of the abuse. And that may actually be a release and not necessarily a bad thing, even though it might be intense or uncomfortable in that release of emotion. One of the things that hurts most survivors from their support systems is when someone says nothing at all. And this is true for sexual abuse survivorship. It's also true in grief and divorce. Pretty much any of the biggie things we might go through as a human being. I'm hoping for a time when as a society, we let go of word policing and pay more attention to the energy delivered underneath those words so that we can have grace and more relatability. Even well-intentioned humans may trip their own foot into their mouth. This may actually be better for a survivor because at least someone's trying to engage them than going silent. I observe the internet and social media really pushing this idea directly and indirectly that Trauma is held in the act, and that's not really true. The trauma is actually held in how we hold it in our minds and our bodies. The messages that we receive, the messages that we create from that event, consciously and subconsciously. Lots of factors impact whether or not something is going to encode traumatically or not, like age, the duration of the abuse, the frequency, how many times it happens, the intensity, how much support is available elsewhere, what kind of enriched life this person is leading in other ways, how safe they feel in other places and in general. 
ongoing childhood sexual abuse does have effect. It has to. We know the obvious, I think, so this is an attempt for me to get more nuanced. That ongoing abuse can cause post-traumatic stress or compounded post-traumatic stress, which is just wave after wave after wave after wave compounding on that person before they can sort of get their legs under them or stand up and catch their breath psychologically, emotionally, physically. Ongoing abuse has an increased propensity to develop anxiety and depression and addiction and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I hope this list helps survivors out there know with more clarity what it is they are attempting to heal after enduring such an abuse. And no, this is not an exhaustive list because I could never, ever write a list long enough. Sexual abuse in childhood hijacks our natural sexual exploration and development. It makes the roles of pursuer and pursued wonky. It's common for survivors to become polarized. You hear me talk about the pendulum swinging back and forth into extremes and our healthiness being somewhere in that middle ground outside of those polarized extremes. One pole is sexually turning off, anti-sexual. And you may hear terms, and y'all, the terms don't mean much. They really don't. And they, and whoever the they is, the internet, mental health, they will never stop making new terms. Please don't waste a lot of time and energy trying to find an exact right term. The understanding of the concept is so much more important than a correct identifiable term. You might hear things like sexual anorexia or sexual restriction in this realm. More and more, we're seeing asexualness as an identity. And when there's an abuse history, I believe this needs to be explored deeply. This type of aversion to anything sex, this gives the survivor the control of never risking any kind of sexual vulnerability after that original violation. It's understandable. It's a way to feel in control, a way to keep the potential for bad experiences out. But this also holds the consequence of keeping very good things out too, like touch and intimacy, comfort. We get oxytocin as women when we touch someone, when we hold them, when they hold us. The other pole is a hypersexuality. This subconscious logic, because it's not a conscious thought, but our subconscious logic sort of figures out, aha, I get it. People can show up and overpower me sexually and use me as a sexual object. So I will never let that happen again because I will get ahead of this. I will make myself the sexual object and no one will ever surprise me. I will be in control of this dynamic by being super sexual. This is how I will have control. These polarized ways of coping are actually brilliant. Maybe even necessary for a time. But they do have longer term consequences on our worth, on our relationship with ourselves. Certainly, many of us will lean more naturally and healthily towards one pole or the other. 
but we do our work to find a middle ground so that our relationship with our sexual being post this type of abuse isn't polarized based on that abuse, which continues to give that abuser power to guide and affect our lives well after that abuse is done and over and in the past. In terms of healing, there is no way to develop into our original sexual self outside of that abuse history. Therefore, we grieve what we lost. And we lost the right to develop with our own interests at our own pace. This is an innocence lost. It is a human right lost. And we must work to grieve and accept these realities to make peace with returning to an ownership over ourselves so that we can build from where we are now to a place that can be more balanced, more reasonable, safe, enjoyable, intimate, connecting, and honoring of who we are and our unique growth edges. We don't want to shut down growth in this department. Sexual abuse damages worth, particularly when it happens during our development, because of the objectification. In some ways, all types of abuse from one human to another objectify. If someone is raging and beating me with fists, in that moment, I am not considered by the beater to be a person. I am a punching bag in that moment. I am useful for them to work out their emotions. I am an object with a usefulness for the emotional release of another who's overpowering. Abuse robs us of our personhood in this way, of our worth. It's similar when sexually used and abused for another's gratification. Much childhood sexual abuse is soft. It's coercive in a way that makes the child feel like they decided to participate, like it's their fault. This creates massive shame. This is a wild mind twist. Kids do not understand how malleable, how easily manipulated they are because they just aren't a match for the manipulative intentions and desires of a big adult or even an older child. I was very, very smart. I was reading at a college level when I was in elementary school and I was no match for the groomer in my life. When treated like an object for the use of another person, our psyche learns objectification and human self-worth tanks. The abuse becomes a circular logic of proof. If I was a valuable person, if my personhood was valued, I would be treated like a person. Because I am being treated like an object, I therefore have no human worth. Healing is a reclaiming and a re-nurturance of our personhood. Boundaries are imperative here. Figuring out where you start and stop and where another person starts and stops, all while giving the self permission to find voice, to speak up, to grow into clear, strong yeses and nos, and initiate negotiation as we relate with people from a place of self-worth, of mattering without going passive doormat or level 10 fighter. Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about pivotal moments in history? 
If so, then try my new podcast, Calm History. It's a time machine of tranquility filled with immersive and fascinating stories from history. Prior episodes include The Pilgrims, Marco Polo, Henry Ford, Joan of Arc, Jackie Robinson, Klondike Gold Rush, Ancient Greek Olympics, Easter Island, and the Great Pyramid of Giza. There's also a six-part series about the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to calmhistory.com. Boundaries with the self and boundaries with others are very important on the healing path. They give us the container that holds us so that we can grow with safety and security. Maybe like a little tiny plant in one of those little bitty containers. And as we grow, we get bigger containers, wider containers, more space. Sexual abuse teaches secrecy and hiding from the truth. Masking, burying, pretending. In our childhoods as we're developing, that is what abuse teaches. This creates a loneliness and overthinking and overprocessing with the self because you certainly aren't releasing this energy or the stories that brew out of these experiences with anyone safe. This can create a hyper-independence a psychologically sticky idea that it is safest to go at life alone. When we are wired to be with each other, to be tribal, to need people, ongoing abuse creates more of these dynamics. One-time stranger sexual abuse is typically a different type of trauma than the repeated betrayal of a trusted loved one that is meant to be safe and a caretaker. There are more layers to the emotional impact of this when it's someone that we know. Sexual abuse often shows up in our dreams. If we bury such trauma and hide it, where is it to go? Well, it goes beyond the psychological to the spiritual. Spiritually or psychologically, we are meant to deal with the reality of things. So when we don't, the psychic or internal tension has got to go somewhere. I had many dreams around the years of my memories coming back. And not like the movies make it out of the actual peak moment of the sexual abuse happening. Though that might be a common dream for abuse survivors. But the brain sends these dreams to us not to torture us, trying to make sense like a math problem, a word problem that we have to just keep working until we can sort of get it. But in the human condition, it's never going to make sense. One plus one is never going to equal two about someone abusing and violating our bodies, particularly someone that that had the task of holding safe space for us, of nurturing us. The dreams that I would have weren't of that peak abuse moment. Rather, it was repeated moments of the door opening because my dad would come in my room wordlessly at night. So my dreams were giving me that moment where he would enter and I'd see the light from the hallway 
contrasted with the dark bedroom. And then again, when he'd leave the bedroom, opening the door, light from the hallway, I would dream of this in and out and in and out and in and out over and over and over and over again. I had to sort this to get the dreams to stop. The way I sorted it was to partner with it versus resist it. And that sounds like, okay, self, you keep showing this to me. I gather that the abuse happened a lot more than I am consciously aware of because I don't remember the specifics other than one time. That's what you've given me, mind. I am settling on the idea with help from my therapist that it's enough for me to know that it was ongoing and that it was silent. My abuser, my dad, never said a word about it in any of those instances. And from what I asked and could gather from my siblings and his non-relative victim that I'm aware of, he never said a word to any of them either. I thanked my subconscious for trying to communicate with me. And as I did so, the tension of those dreams started to melt away. Partnering with those dreams, allowing them, even though I hated it and didn't want it to happen, was key to working with those dreams versus fighting and trying to control them away. After focusing my healing work many years ago, right in this spot for a few months, I didn't have them anymore. I took the lesson that my subconscious was trying to show me, was trying to give me, and then they went away. Our minds and our bodies post-abuse, they really are trying to help us. They're trying to help us figure it out. They're trying to take care of us, but it certainly doesn't feel like it and can often feel like a cruel trick to have to endure when we don't understand how to work with some of our psychology instead of trying to fight it down, smush it down, shove it down, deny it, block it, and just control it into stopping. One-time stranger assault is more rare. When that happens, it's typical that it comes with more external to the home triggers. Fears of safety when out in public, looking over your shoulder. And home can become and, and is more of a safe haven, hopefully, fingers crossed. For incest survivors, home is the scene of the crime. So the idea of home, the feeling of home may be very elusive or scary. We might not know how to feel safe and settled around the idea of home or in settling our own homes. As we heal, we can help ourselves create peace create a sense of home for ourselves, take our power back from that violation of violating what home means so that we can pair and partner home with sanctuary as it was always meant to be. I have had to work with my inner child to show her and to get her to trust that I have created an actual sanctuary, not a false one, a safe one inside of myself my grown-up wise woman part becoming the home for my psychological inner child. And yes, we all want a lovely physical home to create physical sanctuary. And I craved that for a long time when I was really struggling to make ends meet. But what we really need is to learn 
to silence the inner critic and inner bully so that your inner child finds a safe place to fall, a sanctuary within, provided by grown-up wise woman or wise man you. And from that cultivated internal sanctuary, we feel more stabilized. And then we can use more of our energy to work, to build a career, to find a way to build our sanctuary, to give energy and nurturance to our outer environment and build that sanctuary. We do get to learn how to ultimately create an environment as our lives unfold that resonates with who we are and what we need. Sexual abuse can create a wonky relationship with substances. If you are overwhelmed with feeling and dealing or trauma repetition, you're likely to feel a strong desire to numb out. Again, understandable. I began my career working in dual diagnosis with addiction and trauma. And though the only belief system allowed when I was starting was once an addict, always an addict, total abstinence. That's the only lens that was allowed. And it just didn't fit for me. As I saw clients process and progress, find new healthy coping, add to support and compassionate self-understanding, growing self-worth while silencing the inner critic, guess what? They didn't need to numb out as much. I've worked with many people to help them figure out their relationship with various substances so that they can figure out if they need to 100% stop a substance like alcohol and be in total sobriety, or if they can use some of these substances like a healthier tool in the tool bag, not a crutch, not a mask, and not something to self-sabotage and self-abuse. We start with a harm reduction model, and if that is unattainable with positivity and self-love, we look at total abstinence, for a time or endlessly, though few of my clients have gone on to want or need total and complete abstinence, though some do. And I assure you that no matter how messy you might feel in this realm, it is absolutely figure outable. I'm going to pause here. I have more to say. So this is going to be an extended two-part episode that'll come out in two weeks because next week, I'm interviewing Eric Zimmer from the podcast, The One You Feed. If you want to dive more deeply with me, I invite you to come hang out in our Patreon, patreon.com backslash emotional badass. Lots of people who are there, you know, we're highly sensitive people. I don't run it like a Facebook feed. Every single thing that I put there is a little nugget. You don't have to come every day. You don't have to come every week. You don't have to come every month. But when something comes up in your life, it's a place where you can go and look for some of the nuanced topics. We have hours and hours and hours of live stream Q&As from the almost five years of content we have been putting there. We have well over 50 episodes that are not available here. They're not available on our website. And Patreon, it's a smaller, cozier community. As intimate and open as I am here, I do think you get a little more of my personality. You get to see me on video and might sound strange. There's a lot that I can transmit through you being able to watch me with my body language that I just can't do over this microphone here. So if you resonate with my work, emotionalbadass.com backslash Patreon. It's also the place where we give all kinds of discounts. 
discounts to our courses. I'm creating more now. Discounts to our merchandise. Discounts to our meditations that you can get on our website that are stripped down. No explanation, no music, no nothing. Just you, me, and meditation. Healing happens in layers. And that's part of why I put so much energy into the podcast and into the Patreon. Because it's not like learning math. We have to marinate in these concepts. We have to hear them over and over. Light and love and look for part two in two weeks. I'm an emotional badass. You're an emotional badass. And together we are where Moxie meets mindful. Bye-bye. Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about history? If so, then try my podcast, Calm History. You'll learn all about famous explorers, inventions, civilizations, ancient wonders, and even the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to Calm History dot com.